Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Queerly, to Queerly Ever After. <laughs> We're your hosts. your hosts. I'm Bali. I'm Rhea. And today Welcome. we're going to dis- yeah. Welcome. <laughs> today we're going to discuss uh, the Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. Trigger slash content warnings for this episode include incest miscarriage, coerced sex, religious persecution, violence, poisoning, and bodily mutilation. If you haven't got it from our terrible intro, the vibes of this podcast are... Immaculate. Uh, immaculate. immaculate. <laughs> so, I guess just we're just going to dive in. So... Mm-hmm. Welcome to our first episode. Yeah, welcome. I don't know why you're here, but thank you. Yeah, I don't know how you ended up here, but, you know, thanks thanks for (laughs) coming. Uh, Hopefully you'll stick around. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, let's just dive right in. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, spoilers, spoilers, please read the book before you come here. Yes. I I mean, we're going to give a short, like, kind of premise of it. Yeah. But then after that, we're going to include a lot of spoilers. So go in for maybe, we'll, we'll alert you when we start spoiling everything. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. basically, The Prior of the Orange Tree, um, it's basically an epic fantasy um, set in this like imaginary world that splits west and east. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it focuses on Eid Durian, who's the main character. And she comes from the south, and she's been tasked by the Priory of the Orange Tree to watch over Sabrin the Ninth. Sabran, no, it is Sabran. I will no. die on this tree. It's, it's, this it's, I'm gonna say Sabrin. We should probably Google it at some point, but like oh, whatever. Are Are we gonna? I think. Okay, wait. We'll 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 do that later. We will. Okay. We will do that later. Write that down somewhere. Yes. So. <laughs> Who is the queen of Inns? 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 Yeah, Inns. Which is like one of the various um, kind of kingdoms. And so that's going on in like the Western portion. And basically, Inns is like um, ruled by a religion called Virtudum, which must, which like only two kingdoms, right, in the West. Well, Mentendon and Innis and Iskalin or what's called the chainmail of virtudom and basically they believe that Sabrin's ancestor was oh this guy called Gal Galian 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 Barrett that I'm not good with names okay <laughs> Barrett and he defeated this ancient dragon called the nameless one with his magic sword a thousand sword. years ago a thousand years ago as- and then he got with this woman called Cleoland and basically, as long as their bloodline continues, it's said that the nameless one will stay at bay. And so, actually, this is really, this is the amazing part of the book, which is that it's basically kind of a feminist book in how the women, the queens, are seen as, you know, the main people. But I want to discuss that. I want to discuss okay. that. Which and is also, also why it's like called say, a queendom. So yes. Cool. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to say, why just why could they never name their dark lords like voldemort is he who shall not be named 
please don't copyright us on that. And um, now the nameless one, like people just name your dark lords. Come but I on. feel like, how would you name them? Like Chris, Fred, Tom, George, Fred. I feel Harry. like it ruins the it. worse the name, the better. It ruins it. The more white manish the name okay. is. <laughs> but imagine bow to Tom, me for the I am the destroyer of worlds. <laughs> bow to me for I am the dark lord, Charles. <laughs> No, wait, wait. I'm the Dark Lord Larry. Oh my god, Larry. 10 out of 10. <laughs> anyway, so. Where basically, were we? where were we? <laughs> so basically, yeah, there are a bunch of like assassins trying to kill the queen, and Eid is supposed to protect them. So, meanwhile, we also get to see the story of Tene, who's from the east, from the kingdom, the island kingdom of. Of Seiki. 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 How do you read an 800-page book and forget, like, one of the main lands? I'm looking at the maps, okay? I skip over (laughs) the words. I skip over words. Leave me alone. Anyway, so, basically, they believe in the majesty of the dragons. So there's two different types of dragons here. The evil fire-breathing dragons, which everyone calls worms, and the eastern dragons that are water-based, they fly somehow with like an organ on the top of their head. It's kind of brushed over, and they basically <laughs> Wait, live in the water. Wait, what? I just realized why that is because actual fish have swim bladders, which operate yeah. on the same thing. And if they're based on water, it's also super funny though when fish exactly. like lose their swim bladders, and so they just lie at the bottom of their pond. But you know they're alive. But c- continue. So basically. <laughs> The eastern dragons are modeled very much on Chinese dragons, while western ones are modeled on, like, European dragons. You can see that kind of dichotomy between uh, traditional, like, eastern dichotomy. principles and traditional western principles throughout the whole book. It's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, she's training to be um, a member of the High Sea Guard. They're dragon riders, and basically they ride on dragons who are seen as gods to them and help protect Seiki from the dragon plague or the yes uh, oh yeah and Seiki is um and much of the east is closed down to the west because they have con- conflicting religions in how the east they you know worship uh their dragons and the east is it that the east thinks that in a thousand years the um no they the nameless think- one will come back they think that like their dragons are keeping the nameless one at bay or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the fourth of the or the third of the fourth four storytellers is Nicolay Rus. Nicolay's. Oh my god! I hate this guy. I'm sorry. I do. He's interesting. So basically, he's, he is interesting. He's an alchemist and an anatomist um, that used to live in Mentendon, which is one of the kingdoms of the uh, Chainmail Virtudum, one of the three kingdoms of the West. And for various reasons that are slightly spoilers, um, he gets banished by Sabran. 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 I'm just appeasing you at this point. Um, (laughs) He gets banished to live in on an island that has a name that starts with O. Just give me a second to go back to the map. He gets banished to Orisama. Thank you, Orisama. (laughs) Thank you for remembering this. because essentially he tried to create an elixir of life for the queen and it did not go well as these things usually do not go well 
And the queen, pretty much, besides the fact that he, like, kind of did not, was not able to do it in two years and squandered a lot of the money on gambling and drugs, he also, like, as it's revealed... story. Oh, wait, did, did we, are, are we into the spoilers now? Not yet. Let, let's wait a little bit. I okay, want to that, introduce that Locke a big spoiler, before we get though. into spoilers. It's, yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. Not, not a big spoiler. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah. so and the fourth narrator, his name is Ardaloth Lothbeck. Everyone calls him Loth. You will, he'll, he's called like Lord Ardaloth like twice. Um, <laughs> so Loth is a childhood friend of uh, Sabrin and he's, he's a heir. nice guy. Yeah, he's really nice. He's the heir to like some Dutch. He's the heir to some like he, he's, an, he's a noble yeah. kind of. He's basically like a big fancy noble, but he's like really sweet. It also yeah, really he's, naive. It's, it's kind of nice. Yeah. Basically, he and Ede are friends, too, and he's the brother of Ede's best friend, Margaret Beck, or Meg. Mm-hmm. And, and he's also the friend to, what's his name, Kit. Kitson? Kitson. Kitson. But Which is another Kit. lord who's also yeah. a poet. Yeah. So those are the four main characters. Well, those are the four POV characters, basically. Because the yeah. book is told by these four characters. How many but characters are in the book in total, actually? There's literally a whole section at the end. Exactly. I'm counting the it's section. Like a 30-page oh section. Four. But yeah, other characters of note include Sabrin the Ninth. She's the queen of Innis. Um, her husband. They call spouses companions in here, which is really cute, I think. Um... What's her name? What's his name? Hmm? What's Sabrin's... What's Sabrin's husband's name? Oh, Chabrat Livlin. Uh, yes, him. He's also <laughs> called the Red Prince. And he's the Crown Prince of... Or High Prince of Mentendon. Uh, there's also the Duke's Spiritual. Basically, the religion of Virtudom is founded on principles of a knighthood, and there are six virtues, which include... <laughs> yeah, okay. Justice, generosity, courtesy, uh, fellowship, 120 characters. Wow. <laughs> generosity and... What's the sixth one? It, temperance. Temperance. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So those are the six knighthoods, and basically six virtues. And there's a duke spiritual for each of those virtues. Who advises the queen. Yeah, who yeah. advises the queen. It's basically like a privy council, mm -hmm. if you think about like English monarchy. Um, and basically those duke spiritual are descended from the original knights that followed Sir Galleon. Galleon? Galleon. Galleon. <laughs> that followed Sir Galleon, who's called the saint. And Cleoland is called the damsel, but in the priory she's called the mother. And this is... Religion is interesting in here. Religion is very funny. So, so are we allowed to spoil things now? I think we covered like the main the right? spoil things. Yeah, we covered the main summary of the book. It's really interesting. It, it really it, is. It's what I would ten out of ten recommend this. Yeah. Like I usually hate medieval books like this or huge fantasy books because this like this it, is eight hundred four pages. It is huge. But it it's is really huge. good, guys. 
but it, just it go read it it's just good. go read it it's worth it it is worth it even if you're not usually into the genre like it's well yeah. written and it's not like one of those like it's not worded like lord of the rings and like oh yeah i hated lord of the rings i could not get into language but this is pretty simple yeah the text is pretty is. big like you're gonna love it go read like, it the complexity in it just comes from the author's amazing use of like metaphors and stuff to like make it yeah. sound so beautiful honestly amazing. like just props to miss shannon over here would read again yes so if i had the time yeah. <laughs> so we're entering the spoilers portion of this podcast podcast should we insert music here like spoiler music Ooh, spoiler music. Spoiler music. Okay, insert it here. We're doing this in post credits. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we're gonna start discussing like the plot in detail. I have a couple things I know I want to discuss in depth. Oh yeah, my I'm God. sure you do too. Your book is marked up so much. I know. I just have like sticky notes. I kept ripping up sticky notes and like putting them in. And my sister was like, what are you doing? And I'm like <laughs> marking up my book. And she's like, you nerd. I feel like you would not remember anything from this book if you didn't mark it up. I would not. My you first did not note remember is, the main character's My name. first note is love the map. I'm pretty oh sure Oh my God. I really do love now. the map. <laughs> yeah. It's like really pretty. I love when books have maps. I usually hate it because it means the book's too long, but this actually helped. Like, it's one of those maps where I skipped over it at first, but as they're, like, coming to the end of the book, I, like, was going through here, like, wait, if they're sailing, what, where are we here? What's going on? Yeah, and it helped. It did. So my first actual note in the book is, love me a woman with a dagger, <laughs> which is when he'd, um, was about to stab someone. Or no, when Tane was about to stab someone, um, which is always nice. Stabbing is good. <laughs> Don't do murder kids. Honestly, Ida is just such a badass character. I love her. She is. So why don't we start by discussing, I guess, um, the queendom of Innes and exactly queendom. like I love feminism that. in this book. The first time that I saw like queendom, it just like went over my, my, my mind. Wait. Because if I was writing a book like this, I would have just said kingdom without even realizing that's based on the word king, because usually they'd rule. It was like, Miss Shannon, yeah. how could you do this? Anyways. <laughs> yeah, so what's really cool is, basically, every queen since Cleoland. 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 Um, yeah, it was definitely Cleoland. Um, has had one single daughter that's essentially a clone of herself. Like and they n- rule. N- not that way. Like they look very alike is what Folly yeah. is trying to say. They look very similar. So it's been ruled by queens for a thousand years. And while I think that's like really cool and like feminist, it really does portray misogyny in like a different way. Because Yeah, a lot of this is like there's still misogyny in a lot of parts of it, which yeah. is interesting. Because like what we've seen is Sabrin really does not want to get married. Exactly. She wants to avoid having kids. Mm-hmm. She's really afraid of like pregnancy. Yeah, because the whole point of her birth, religion but... is that like as long as her bloodline continues, then the nameless one is kept at bay, which basically her the entire fate of like her like queendoms feeling like they're safe relies on her producing an heir, which kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, and like as we see later when um 
she does get pregnant she's really struggling with that and her bloodline is like prone to depression and she really kind of falls into a depression especially after so her child is killed when her kingdom is attacked by a dragon maybe you should talk about how her husband is killed before that well, her husband you. is killed and then her and child then she is miscarries. killed and she miscarries she doesn't even miscarry her yeah, like, actually, uterus is impaled by the spike of a dragon yeah <laughs> um but like all of that makes her feel like she's unworthy to be a queen because her whole life she's been told that like her only purpose is as a walking womb exactly and that like... me too movement and uh, <laughs> pro-lifers mm. and you kind of see like how that same like dictomy that oh my god i said dictomy that same kind of thing that exists in our society too happens where she like had to get married to older guys which is yeah creepy like how Archibald Livelin was like 60 or 70 right no, she no, was no. that was the other guys that was the chieftain oh okay yeah then uh, how Octobrest old was like around her age maybe a little younger because she's 28 she was yeah okay she well is, it's but yeah. the fact that she's being offered to a 60 70 year old guy and basically so um there's this whole plot line where Egraine Crest the Duke of Justice or the Duchess of Justice tries to kill Sabrin because she doesn't like submit to the duchess's like demands that she get married to this older man and have a kid immediately Mm. so it's really talking a lot about how like women themselves play into this sort of oppression at times yeah and how you know like not following what society tells you to do can be harmful to you sometimes or a lot because of the like time. if you see in a lot of groups especially with stuff like shaving and all of that in our society it's kind of like what's the word sexism done by woman onto woman and the book kind of shows that in itself too with how even the woman in the household focus more on sabran's child when she still has it than her herself exactly like once she becomes pregnant she no longer matters except as a vessel for the kid who isn't even like alive at that point you know what i mean yeah like it's it's really reminiscent of like pro-lifers arguments that yeah if you can't tell we're very liberal we're very liberal (laughs) if you're not prepared for that please oh wait we're 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 doing a queer podcast wait i should (laughs) have um if you're not liberal please leave no hate here just i mean days. folly folly we, we need we need people to listen to our podcast oh yes uh yes. Um, republicans are okay i guess yeah yeah i i love the color red guys yeah kind of red though anyway so, okay yeah. um anything else you want to say on this topic um i mean i think that honestly covers it yeah yeah honestly yeah wait and even the Priory itself, so the Priory of the Orange Tree, it's like the separate group that was formed by Cleoland a thousand years ago, which believes that Cleoland did not get married to Sir Gal- Galleon Barathnet. Barathnet? Barathnet. And she instead formed the Priory of the Orange Tree to keep the worms, which are the f- dragons, not from the east they're the winged dragons not the water yeah the winged dragons at at bay and so this actually is kind of the split too though because 
So all the people from the Pride of the Orange Tree, including Eid, believe that she's um that Cleoland just came here and she refused help from Sir Galleon. But all the people in Virtudom, including Sabran, believe that she that, that Cleoland married Galleon and that Cleoland was like a damsel in distress. And so it like kind of foreshadows religious differences. And the fact that at the end it's revealed that the Priory was correct and that Virtudom had the wrong story is also really interesting because it's sort of like throughout well, history, no one that was... narrative of the dance yeah. and distress has really been pushed on young kids, especially through uh, the mouse. You know the, the mouse? mouse? Mickey the mouse. Disney. The, <laughs> the stories of the mouse. <laughs> Okay, okay, that's weirdly I mean, kind of creepy. Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, Snow White. Like, yeah. Got, like, like, it's like ugh, so much fake feminism. Exactly. So it's really refreshing to see like a society entirely of women that like push strong women to be self-sufficient, but also they're a family. Like, I don't know. It's really interesting. It's very, yeah. it's very uh, Diana of the Amazons, like. One oh one yeah, it does first. give that. Yeah, because yeah. all the and- guys. It was super funny to me because <laughs> when they were saying they were short-staffed on warriors, the prioress, who's like the leader, is like, "Wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the prioress or the leader was like, I guess we might have to train the boys to fight." Exactly. So just some background on that. Basically, the women of the Priory eat from the magic fruit of this magic orange tree that lets them practice like a fire-based magic called Sidon. This becomes important later on in the book. Wait, but okay, okay. Wait, are, are we allowed to introdu- introduce um, the whole idea of like the immortality tree stuff yet? Or Let's wait to introduce wait. the immortal tree stuff. Because <laughs> I have a question about that. But anyways, okay. So another theme I wanted to discuss was sort of virtudom as Christianity, because you know it was plainly <laughs> obvious to me. Very... Yeah, that virtudom was supposed to represent a sort of medieval Christianity, and Sabrin was almost supposed to represent Elizabeth the First. I feel, even though Elizabeth was the Virgin Queen, quote unquote and Sabrin did have kids, it's that same sort of, like, whenever people talk about Elizabeth, she's always, like, a savior and, like, like, graceful and beautiful and all that and, like, immortalized. And I felt Sabrin had that a lot, too. I don't know. It just seems familiar to me. Yeah, I feel like if... I, I really agree with that. It kind of felt like it was what's the word it yeah it was reminiscent of that and i feel like the religion <laughs> let's preface this by saying that miss shannon in the beginning of her book says the fictional lands are inspired from various parts of the world none is a faithful representation of any culture but you know virtue dump <laughs> christianity but um <laughs> for the east i feel like it's definitely built on like a mix of different asian beliefs kind of stuck together from like the robe style to yeah. the dragons it's very clearly like and like the so throughout the whole like book until basically near the very end the west virtue dump 
really disparages the East and like the religious beliefs centered around dragons. Mm -hmm. They call them like heretics, and this is yeah. very similar to all of colonialism. Yeah. Um, and I think, like at the end, they form an alliance, and they have the West admits that Virtudum was like in the wrong. And I don't know. That was. I that feel was like it happened too easily, to be honest. Yeah. Because like, that's the only complaint I'd have with the plot line, because all that happened was um, Artaloth Beck went over and petitioned them, and there and the guy was like, yeah, let's be progressive, lol. Yeah. No! <laughs> like, basically the emperor, the un unceasing emperor of the something lakes. Of the Great Lakes. Yeah. Yeah, Michigan. <laughs> The unceasing emperor of the Twelve Lakes, um, who's based in the city of the Thousand Flowers. Like, this is very, these naming conventions are also very, like, reminiscent of China, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, basically, he acts like a man who is high on weed in his 20s. <laughs> it does. It, those, are, those are the vibes I got from him, Like, guys. the thing is, the only amount of resistance was said that, like, his grandmother, who's a high ru ruler than him, he would do whatever she said. Was she mentioned as, like, agreeing in this? Yeah, so she agreed. And, like, the imperial dragon, who's oh, yeah, the god I think, of the court, like, yeah. and rules over the dragons of the land, also agreed. I think the um, fact that, like, the dragons, the dragons must know what was coming, so the fact that they agreed kind of let everything yeah. in motion but it was also interesting how the west expected the east to come to their aid no matter what without offering any sort of reparations it didn't they they offered that their anything. army would be there and they offered trade but that none of that really mattered none of that really matters because it was literally a thousand years of them calling the east heretics and disparaging them and like it's, it's very reminiscent of, like, performative white activism today, where people are just like, oh, I apologize, I'm reformed now. As Bo Burnham said, I'm a special kind of white guy, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's going to date this podcast so much one day. In the words of our Lord and Savior, Bo Burnham. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's very... I didn't, I didn't... That's the only criticism I really have with this book, that it sort of wrapped up that hate and animosity so yeah quickly. very quickly because as we've seen just like that happened in like 50 pages or less right yeah because yeah. all of a sudden they were in a battle and while i understand like alliances in times of necessity they didn't really understand like they just heard that like all that was gonna happen like exactly it doesn't really make sense i would say like I would have preferred if they sort of draw that draw that out more, had more conversations yeah. about their differences, because I only worry though it would have felt like they stalled the book because I think so much was happening then, like the plot was suddenly advancing because yeah. we were going forward with the timeline and all that, and like if it suddenly got drawn into talks, it would have felt like it, it's all happening too slow and like the timeline wouldn't make sense and you'd lose interest right near the end of the book. That's true. Yeah, so I, don't I, know, think, I don't know if yeah. this is, like, fixable, but 
I'd say I think, like it might have had to be that way because after we hear so much of like differences throughout the book like we get it like I think maybe Miss Shannon kind of thought like they're done hearing about this they know what's coming next why should we prolong it in the book unnecessarily but also I don't know it's like both all right Folly what's next in that big sticky noted book of yours <laughs> Well, there's obviously the gays, but I feel like the gays deserve. We they we're gonna talk about them in their own section. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. so. That's gonna be the theme with all of our episodes. By the way, we're gonna start with like a short summary, and then we're gonna discuss themes of the book, and then we're gonna discuss queerness of the book. Then we're gonna rate. Then we're gonna rate the book, and then the podcast is over. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Let's um. See. I, I sticky noted less and less as I went on. <laughs> oh, let's talk about science and medication. That was a theme. Okay. Okay. So, like throughout the book, Ed is just like constantly being constantly being so salty. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> against these like physicians, I'm gonna read a quote from page two forty four. Ed emptied the bedpan back. Ed emptied the pan back into the heart hearth. She wondered if the in- Inish knew anything useful about childing or if their physicians dealt in naught but guesswork. And that's just like one example of her saltiness. I think it really is reflective of how if you went back to like the 1300s or the Middle Ages, you'd look at like England and be like, oh my god, humanity is so darn down in the depths. And then you look at everywhere else and you're like, oh, it's just England. Yeah, because like when Sabrin gets her like depression... Mm-hmm. They kind of just say, be happy, you know? Exactly. Like, like, that's like they your depression. Yeah. <laughs> and when, so when she starts thinking like dark thoughts about her kid because she didn't really want one and her husband just died, uh, her ladies in waiting, who are called the ladies in the bedchamber, are like, don't think bad thoughts or it'll like poison your seed. And Eve is <laughs> like, what are you people doing? What are you? She's like, are, are you like people this? high? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's very interesting to sort of for once bring out the negatives in medieval Christianity because so much of like I mean when people think of medieval medieval like Christendom it's like knights the crusades armor powerful kings and like feuds and wars no one really talks about like how I hate to say this but how backwards it was compared to the rest of the world especially in terms of medicine science literature yeah how it's really all been constrained by religion Mm -hmm. you know yeah like a lot of the world to be they all like kind of believed in the same thing between cleoland and cleoland and galleon bareth that existed and it's not that any of them like really were like being harmful in that belief but more if they let it separate them for no good reason which became harmful and yeah. I think that just kind of talks about the intersectionality between, like, progress and religion. Because, like, obviously, as we've seen throughout history, the church has done a lot to slow scientific progress. What with Galileo and Copernicus and evolution, genetics, uh, abortion now, and, like, use of fe- uh, fetal tissue in, like, stem cell research. And I feel like that dichotomy doesn't need to be there because, like, 
Christianity and science can exist together. They're two explanations for essentially, like the beauty how did of we, the world. How did we delve you know, down this road? Because we had this conversation the other day, <laughs> yesterday, in fact. And I feel like what this book is trying to say is that like religion can be a bad thing if it governs everything you do to such an extent that you refuse to listen to anything else. But as we see at the end, if you can use religion to create like bridges between people, that's the best way to do it. It's I also say, really interesting. A religious person. <laughs> it's also really interesting though, because the entire time, so if anything good happens, then people who believe in like, what was it? The Dawsinger religion? Dawsinger, yeah. Yeah. There- that was sort of, I feel like that was paganism as yeah, I it feel was like, before Christianity like reached England. Yeah, but they're talking about like let's say the prioress. Everyone who was in that would say like thank the mother and everyone who who was like from Virtudum would say thank the saint. And it was really funny because then when people from Virtudum started like learning about well what really happened from the sisters in the priory of the orange tree, they kept saying, Oh, this is this is a test of faith, right guys? Yeah. <laughs> like it kind of just I'm dying it's a test of faith <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> it was kind of funny but I don't know it was really nice though to see halfway through like it's kind of sad because everyone when Ede, Ede was always like a sister of the Priory of the Orange Tree so she never believed in Virtudum and and so people were only able to like still be friends with her because they remember being friends with her when she was pretending to be part of Virtudum. Yeah. So it's kind of sad that like that had to happen. Even when she pretended to convert to be like a lady in waiting for the queen, um, she was still like, found, like people still st- suspected her of not actually believing. And as she points out, she was like, you wouldn't judge any other convert so why would you judge me judge me because i'm from the south and i feel like that talks a lot about like double standards for people of color because Ede is described as like having brown skin and the south is seems to be based on like the middle east sometimes yeah. and like like that sort of yeah it kind of gives that yeah. idea and especially like Ede's Ede's full name is what Ida's. Idaz Unara, Uknara. I feel like that definitely sounds a bit Middle Eastern in nature, right? Yeah, that that definitely sounds like an Arabic name. Yeah. Let me see if I can find it in here. Idaz Duzala Uknara, also known as Idurian. Um, like the whole priory seems to have Middle Eastern names, and I think that's very like the distrust against her simply for being from the south is very like reminiscent of not even just islamophobia but just like general general xenophobia yeah general xenophobia especially in america yeah if you're brown from the middle east have like a middle eastern sounding name you're like suspected of being a terrorist or you're hated even though you might not be muslim yeah like I mean, there have been sick people killed for being yeah for because 
white supremacists think they're the Muslim. Like, if, if you're gonna be racist, at least get your stuff right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Yeah, don't insult me for being a Muslim. Insult me for being an Indian. Come on. <laughs> get your act together. But okay. yeah, we joke so we don't cry. Um, yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, um, I think that's yeah. very. Especially like the whole conversion narrative. I don't know. Oh yeah. I keep saying so- I don't know. <laughs> Do we want to go into Nicolay's ruse as a character? Yes. I Let's dislike him. You I'm hate saying him. that. I hate I him. I find him compelling. Okay. Nicolay's He's ruse. compelling, but I also hate him. Let me find the man's little bio. The man's little bio. The little man's little bio. <laughs> okay. Yeah, what does it say in that? It's at the beginning. Isn't that okay. the end? All the people. No, because he's a narrator. Nicolay's Rus, an anatomist and alchemist from the free state of Mentendon and former friend of Edvard II. Edvard is the Edvard. father of Aubrey Leveland and the Seriously? Former, or the uncle? He's like the uncle of Aubrey Leveland and the former king of Mentendon. Um, Nicolay was Nicolay's was banished by Sabrin the Ninth of Ineos to Orissima, the last Western trading post in Seiki. So Nicholas was banished. Okay, so Nicholas has a tragic backstory of his own. His father was a drunk. His mom was like narcissistic and like verbally abusive. He went to university for anatomy and he was dirt poor the whole time. But um, he has a love for alchemy. And yeah, he has so a love for alchemy. So he got a patron patronship from Sabrin um at her court to study alchemy to try and find the elixir of life for her the thing is though so as i was saying earlier he wasted a lot of the money on gambling and deaths and he took too long but and also drink. And drink. he became oh drunk. yes and drinking sabran really hated him like she exiled him to orisima for seven years because as we said earlier, there was huge pressure on Sabron to like have an heir based on misogyny and you know all of that, and he preyed on that by making her feel like if she gave him enough money to find an elixir of life, I mean, she would never have to have kids. I don't think he preyed on that. He to be honest, he doesn't desire. seem. He yeah, preyed I... on her desire to be immortal, but he didn't know why. She wanted to be immortal so that she could live forever and avoid having a kid but i don't think he knew that not from yeah. what i've read i feel like he didn't really understand how much it hurt her while she felt like he did it on purpose yeah. so another aspect of his character is his love we're entering the queer territory here okay okay we're not um, gonna go too far though his love for jen art jen art is um, a member of the zidor family they're a noble family from mentendon and uh, he fell in love with him. They're gay. They're gay, your honor. <laughs> um, and basically, they were together for, what, 30 years? Yeah, and that entire time, Janart was married to Adeline because yeah. he was promised her as a kid. Yeah, so betrothed. And it was kind of sad because, like... And, yeah, and because of Virtudom, um, if you break your oath and, like, commit adultery the knight of fellowship like because of the knight of fellowship's rules who rules he's basically the knight of fellowship is in charge of marriage and the knight of fellowship says you basically get killed or imprisoned 
if you commit adultery, which is I really very, appreciate which is very the, medieval of you. Yes, how the problem with it wasn't that it was you know gay or anything. It was more of just you're just cheating. You're you're just married. Yeah, which was nice. It that was nice. nice. Like it was yeah. nice reading a book where like that wasn't the main issue. Exactly. Um. So yeah, basically, Jenar was determined to discover like bits of knowledge and he ran across this uh piece of a famous alchemical text that's called something of something i don't remember i'm sorry guys I'm you're an amazing names. podcaster Polly. thank you i'm bad with <laughs> names i remember the plot details but not the names and basically jenart died for this and nicholas stopped died. living <laughs> Well, yeah, he was trying to find this article because he was Janart was obsessed with history. So he went to a place which was stricken with the draconic plague, and so he died. And yeah, and then Nicholas basically became super depressed. bad at living. Yeah, depressed. Yeah, and he sort of gave up on life. He just kept like he started just drinking even more, and then he got exiled. Um. And basically, his exile was very sad and lonely because no one in, like, the... Seiki? Well, the thing is, he lives in Orisima, but Seiki's also attached, right? Yeah, but... Orisima is an island. No, no, but aren't they, like, attached? But, like, there's a gate between Seiki and Orisima? It's a water gate, I think. Yeah, so they could always keep it... Because the main reason why the East is afraid of the West isn't because is because like religious differences, but also because they wanted to keep the draconic plague out. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, basically, the man's had a sad life, and that's made him a sad sort of person. He's his character is very similar to Snape, I would say, because I'm going to keep comparing this to Harry Potter. Because you um, are a Potterhead. I would also like to say trans people are people. Fuck JKR. She's a turf. I still love Harry Potter, though. Because, <laughs> um, world building. Everyone in Harry Potter's queer now, because I said so. Anyway. Okay, thanks for your disclaimer there, Polly. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't want people to think me, or us, the, the genderqueer people, are turfs. So. Yes. <laughs> um, like, he's a bastard of a character, but over time he kind of grows on you because his he didn't grow on me i hate him but you hate him but i love <laughs> snape for reasons um and I okay feel well like, i kind of like snape but i, like, I didn't i did not like i like Roos as a character i don't like him as a person he definitely made some bad choices because he like tried to sacrifice a dragon to save his own skin exactly like, okay wait should we just Empress. go through his character plot line and dissect it yeah here? sure okay so he so, starts off in his little mm. town. And so, just a bit of backstory. Um, Tane, the day before her choosing ceremony, in which she was supposed to be inducted as a dragon rider, in which she is, she basically s- illegally snuck out because it's said to give you good luck. Except when she went to the ocean, she found a guy named Suliard on the beach who kind of like boarded a ship from the west and snuck onto the island. Because before every other character in the book wanted an alliance between the East and the West, this guy wanted one because he was kind of smart. His girlfriend. Yeah, because his girlfriend too. His girlfriend <laughs> Trude Odzidor, who's essentially the granddaughter 
of, of Nicolay's Jen Ruse. Oh, and basically Nicolay's okay. Ruse. Ruse as well. It's weird. It's just, this it's is weird. a tangled web. This, this is, is a tangled, tangled web. web. Yes, but anyway, so Tane basically takes this man who washes washes up on the shores of Seiki, and she hides him with Nicolay's ruse. The issue with this is Seiki, as we said before, does not like the Dachronic Plague. So this comes with, like, death if she's found out. And Nicolay's ruse hosts the guy kind of against his will. Um, Bali, help me out here. What else? Oh. Uh. <laughs> So after that, he's found out and imprisoned and taken to like the chief guard. Who then, who he then like tells the whole story about um, the guy and Trudet. The guy. What's his name? Suliard. Suliard. He tells the whole story of uh, Suliard and Trudet. And he's then taken Trude? to the warlord. Trude? 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 I don't know. Um, and the warlord, where he tells her about Tane's part, and or he threatens Tane that he's going to tell the warlord about Tane's part in this whole mess. And so this Tene is meets... after Tane's like become a dragon rider, so she's like in a very high place. So it's very yeah. bad. <laughs> so he meets with Tane on the beach, so that she can give him the money that. And like bribe him to silence to like be silenced. And he meets with Tene's dragon named Nayumithun. Nayumithun? Nayumithun? Nayumithun. I I don't know. I no, no. <laughs> I think I'm wrong. I think it's Nayumithun. And um basically Nayumithun gets captured by the Golden Empress, who's a pirate. Um the pirate queen of a pirate kingdom, a la Elizabeth. Um, in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> um, and Nick Clay's Bruce is also captured by the pirates after this. No, yeah. but let's talk about, I don't forgive him. How could he ask, how could he blackmail Tane after everything Tane has been through? Like literally every person but she's loved has died. he doesn't know that. I know, but it He hurts. doesn't know that. We know that because we're the readers, but he doesn't know that. Yeah, but it also sucks. And because think about it, all, all Nick Clay's wanted was to leave isolation alone and live with his friends on the mainland. That was his initial wish. Yeah, but he, he also asked in for dragon scales. He believes in virtue, them though, and he believes that dragons are evil, and he believes that these dragons are the reason why Jenart died because he doesn't know the cause of the dragon plague. Yeah, I don't think that was really behind it, but more of he just doesn't really see them as gods. Yeah, that too, but. I think part of him blames Jenart, Jenart's death on them. Yeah, honestly, I feel like he's just angry at a lot of things for Jenart, which yeah. kind of fuels his character. But I still don't forgive him because he's a mean person. Yes. That's uh, <laughs> how could you ask to carve out a dragon? They look so kind. You- I mean... You'd be surprised what upbringing does to people. Like, that's what fuels a lot of problems in our country. Bad education. We live in America, in case you haven't noticed. Um, So, yeah. Anyway. So, I'd say Roos is interesting. Because he's compelling as a character. Because part of you wants to hate him. Part of you wants to, like, sympathize with him, almost. Because he definitely... 
<laughs> he definitely had a hard life. We get the point, Rue. You hate him. We get the point. <laughs> because he's definitely had a hard life, but that doesn't excuse your actions. And I feel like that's a really good message to send in a book aimed at, like, teens, because yeah. a lot of us have, like, problems, but that doesn't excuse the hurt we cause other people. So, obviously, Nicholas has, like, he lost the love of his life and then was immediately banished away from all his friends and family. And he and hates, becomes a jerk. And becomes a jerk. And he hates Sabrin for that, rightfully. Yeah, he does rightfully hate her for but that. But at the end, he does... He's basically enchanted by this evil witch named... Named... He, he is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not me forgetting the whole plot line here. Um, What's well, name? yeah, after well, this is after the pirates, though. So after yeah. he's, like, taken on the pirates, in which they, like, force him to basically be the ship's surgeon and eventually make him, like... So this piece of paper that Janart gave him... Um, it turns out that they have the rest of it and it's super ancient and he knows not to give it to them but he does because he is a coward and <laughs> eventually they fair, go yeah? I guess he didn't want to die okay yeah m- maybe I would have done that too I gotta be honest but yeah he basically leads them to like the one of the uh, what's the word a mulberry tree yeah. for the elixir of life and uh, this yeah. is bad to bring pirates to the elixir of life, but he does this anyway to save his own skin. Um, he does befriend this other pirate named Layla, and he does try to protect her a little bit. That's true. He, he does try to cut protect off. her. He gets his hand cut off because the mulberry tree died after Niporo. It died like a thousand years yeah, before. Yeah, after Niporo, this like famous queen. There's so much in this book that we can't even really explain it. Yeah, we Um, like it it feels I feel bad. I feel like I'm info dumping on any listener right now who hasn't read it just because it it's too much. There was a hundred and twenty characters. It's it's just too much. It is. Um, Yeah. But anyway, so basically Niporo worked with Cleoland to bind the nameless one using two sacred jewels based on star magic and earth magic and Niporo, fire magic right earth slash fire magic it was weird yeah it's so star <laughs> magic is starin and earth fire magic is the orange tree magic which is called i'm blanking what's it called i i have no idea <laughs> um it's called something hold up Wait, Sidon? Sidon. It's called Sidon. <laughs> so basically the the prophecy is that if these two get out of balance, the nameless one will return. And it's and basically what caused the nameless one to like arrive. Yeah, they and the thing is, like, um Well, so wait, we were on the Clay's Bruce though. So can yeah. I, anyway, I feel like we should continue so, that. Sidetrack from Niporo aside, um, Niporo ate from the mulberry tree, and after that, it stopped creating fruit. So the Empress was very mad and was about to kill Nicholas and his friend Layla when Tenai arrived and saved them. I mean, she didn't really save them, she just saved her dragon. Well, yeah, but she saved them from death by its technically, yeah, the 
Empress or got anxious to have Yeah, the but she really hates Nicholas considering he blackmailed her. And caused his dragon her dragon to get condemned. Anyway. So then Nicholas got his hand cut off by the Golden Empress, and he and... I think he deserved it. Yeah, and he and Layla are somehow taken. I'm not quite sure how it happened. Yeah, it's kind of like a blur, that part, but they're taken by... Yeah, to the... um, The uh, lair. Abode of... The the lair. The Dread Mount. (laughs) The the Kaliba, the evil witch... Um, yes. And she lives in the Dreadmount. And Kaliba tries to charm Nicholas into working for her by taking on the visage of Jenar, which is really, really cruel. Yeah. And so Nicholas goes back to Virgidum and is about to betray everyone, and then he tells Sabrin and Eid the truth. Because ultimately he, he pulled a snake and sacrificed himself. But it's really weird, though, because he does that right after he says how he still hates the Brown because she still hates him for no reason. I think it's because he hates Kaliba more because she dared to take on the visage of the visage? Face of the man. (laughs) Face of the man he loved. Yeah, I feel like Sabran is a bit in the wrong here with how much yeah. she exiled Because him. seven years is a bit much. Seven years. Like, I think especially that was maybe... Because, especially because, like, A, you have a bunch of money. Come on. This man's poor. Let him gamble. And B, <laughs> it's not his fault you have insecurities about childbirth and that you don't want to have kids yeah i think she just didn't understand that he didn't really like mean to manipulate her the way he did exactly and also all of his gambling and deaths were considering like that guy died or janart so exactly so that's (laughs) ruse great and but before we get on to the third section i think we should discuss tane because Literally every every person this girl has loved has died in this book. And it's really, like, caused her to make some interesting and, like, sort of selfish decisions on the other hand, too. Because she's, like, by far the most, like, um, kind of respectful and, like, hardworking character out of everyone here. Yeah. But, but like, because there's like, so much grief in this girl. Because if you look at the, at the end of the timeline, it says, the char- like, the ages of all the characters... Like, Eid is 26, Loth is 30, Nicholas is 64, but Tene is 19. Like, that's so yeah. young, you know? Like, it's so cruel, because, okay, her childhood best friend, Isharu, like, or Ishi- Forget about that. Her parents died. Okay, yeah, her parents died. No, no, in let's a blaze just... of fire as her village burned to the ground in yeah, a dragon attack. Yeah, but besides that, continuing on the timeline, parents died. Isharu, like, her main scholar friend forever- dies well that was later first her she was so numb though okay yeah then so basically she she used her her friend susa to help smuggle the suliard in she he is decapitated in front of her yeah so that is literally like decapitated in front of her and her dragon is taken away from her at the same time too that image of her friend's headless like body and just Like, like floating head is like it comes back multiple times so you can tell that it really affected her because of course it did of course like that was her, like all of her friends die in this and then there is isharu who's like a scholar who's like dies on feather island which is for scholars like by the time she hears about that it barely affects her because she's in so much grief exactly 
and then she's a, <laughs> and then it's revealed that she's actually of the bloodline of Nipporo. Um, and like, yeah. she's then expected to use this magical diamond to seal away the nameless one. It's too much. It's 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 very chosen one tropey. Like, it yeah, does, it is. Like Eid for Eid, it makes sense because she's like trained and in, in magic, and she, she never really gives like the same kind of trope though, in which she's like exactly. works super hard all her life. She will like kill herself to do good. Like Eid knows her boundaries and she's smart about that balance, but Tane isn't. Yeah, she's like that one kid who takes eleven APs. <laughs> like she does like even her own actually well volley at our school and- it'd be that one hit kid who took like 32 ap's 32 ap's i don't even yes know I, I don't anyway. know how how our valedictorian did that but anyways <laughs> anyway um so yeah because even her own friends at the beginning so you have to go through these things called the water trials in order to become a dragon rider because only 12 dragon riders are chosen this year um she literally almost kills herself working to practicing every night while her friends are like going out and or like fun. drinking and stuff. And she like exactly. resents them for it, even though she's kind of in the wrong here. And that's clearly not healthy. Yeah, I feel like from like the emphasis placed on nobility and blood in this book. Yeah, like she was lower class in this. So it's kind of like she has to work so much harder because yeah. everyone else is from a clan. Because like, Nicholas doesn't care anymore. Um, Eid is the daughter of one of the most respected members of the Priory, um, and is descended but she never from the gives, literal like, first Priory. Well, yeah, but she still has that respect. Yeah, she has that respect. And Loth is a literal lord. Um, yeah, everyone here has noble blood, actually. Tenet in some sort only- of Yeah. And Nicholas is essentially an honorary member of the Zidor family at this point, so he yeah. has protection from them. But Tane is really the only commoner that really, like, has a deep backstory and is really focused on. And it really shows like, the damage yeah. that, like, emphasis on blood, hierarchy, like, lordships. On basically can class do on systems people. can do. Exactly. Her character is also kind of a rejection of the whole chosen one thing because she is like the chosen one in some forms, but it's also shown how like being the hardworking person and all that is not like the perfect reality because exactly. like that mentality will never be healthy, even though a lot of things like a lot of media says it is. She almost fails one of the trials because she overworked herself so much. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting adding all that detail. Is there anything else we need to discuss? Oh my god, the Sabrin Sabron thing. I'm looking yeah, it up. Google that, please. Okay, okay, um, I'm Googling this. No! Ha-ha! No! It's Sabrin, isn't it? No. Oh my god, no. I- I'm calling her Sabron. I don't care. It's not Sabron. This is not Sabron. LeBron James. How do you spell LeBron James? L E B R O N. Sabron James. S A B R A N. It's Sabron. Bully, that's. Every it's time Sabrin, I think of it, I'm going to think of Sabron James now. It's your fault. <laughs> I give up. You're hopeless. Anyway, <laughs> moving on, let's discuss the ridiculous amounts of queer content in this book. Oh my god, I love this. from the least mentioned to the most mentioned. 
Okay, f- first, well, can we talk about how our Toth back gives so much Aero vibes? He gives a lot of Ace vibes, but first, I would like to talk about the smallest mention of gay, which is on page 154. And how is your companion, my lord? Crest was saying. Sore disappointed not to be here, your grace, but he will join us soon. Oh my god, I remember reading that. His skin was brown and freckled, his beard shot with gray. How happy that her majesty will soon know the same joy I found in companionship. So, like, a random side character. I love it. Exactly. Because, like, when Disney does one side character and says, oh, it's our first gay character, that doesn't count. But when you have a queer book, and include smaller mentions of queerness other than the like names. it makes it seem not more like a spectacle representation but more exactly. of just people living their lives exactly and that is beautiful and it's like, like it's so just common throughout this book because it's like oh, it's just so refreshing not to see it being criminalized or something exactly and like it's not even like a commoner you know it's like the commoners can do it but us lords have to oh yeah line no this is a lord this is like <laughs> This is, this is the cousin of the queen. This is a big deal, but no, he's gay and it's fine. It's chill. Whatever, <laughs> it's great. It's wonderful. So yeah, let's start by talking about Loth. Definitely. So throughout the book, it's a common theme that his parents keep trying to get, get him married, and he just is not interested in anyone from Ede to um, Sabrin. Yeah, to Sabrin. Yeah, the whole point that he's actually sent away to like a quest because people think that he's going to ruin Sabron's marriage chances because people think they're so close, you know, they must be having an affair. But no, he just respects the woman, you know, he's friends with. And the the male character he's closest to, Kit. They're just friends. Yeah, they're just (laughs) friends. There's no like homoerotic subtext there. Yeah, I was really expecting it. I was. I gotta be honest. But Between a poet there. and a really nice guy. Like... <laughs> exactly, but no. <laughs> I just think, like, Loth really does feel like an Arrow Ace character to me. He because does. He doesn't, he doesn't even want, like, just um, sexual relationships with no romance involved. And he doesn't want romantic relationships with no sex involved. He's just not interested in a partner. And I yeah, don't know just if not... personal choice at the time. Yeah, I know. Maybe it's just, like, because, yeah, I can't tell if, like, Miss Shannon did it on purpose. I don't know why I call her Miss Shannon. It feels, she she feels, okay, but, like, to write this amazing of a book, anyways. um, (laughs) Yeah, but anyways, so. I don't know. I'm going to headcanon him as Arrow Ace because. Yeah, I feel like it's really, it really is proved, though, by the book. Like, there's plenty of evidence for it. Yeah, for Um, example, like, um. At the end, like, his parents are like, oh, I really wanted to, because Margaret is, like, engaged to get married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, her parents are like, oh, I really wanted to see, I really hope to see Loth married before you. And then she's kind of like, oh, he's not planning to get married at all. And then uh, her dad asks Ede if they're planning to get married, and Ede <laughs> is like, Loth and I love each other as brother and sister, nothing more. And really, there's no other potential love interest for him. Yeah, there really isn't. Sabrin and Kit, that's it. There's no one else he really has a close relationship to. Honestly, I'm amazed by how, like, Miss Shannon was able to, like, just write their friendship in a way that no one could, like, misconstrue. Miscon- What's the word? Misconstrue. Yeah, misconstrue it. And especially because it's a male arrow exactly. character. Exactly. Those are rare. Yeah. Like, Headcanon. 
It's we've just claimed him. We've claimed him. We, we've claimed him as their eyes. So, another ace character I really wanted to discuss. It's in a tab here somewhere. Just give me a second. <laughs> Out of your, like, million tabs. Um, is the Unceasing Emperor. The, so, are, are you talking about the warlord that was mentioned for, like, ten pages? No, the Unceasing Emperor. Weed Boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna call him Weed Boy. No. He really acts like he's high all the time. Um... Are, are you are you sure you so, can headcanon him like that? <laughs> because of one single line. I don't know okay. if it's really a headcanon, but I'm okay. going to just mention it because I think it's worth mentioning. Um, basically, Loth goes to the Unceasing Emperor trying to create an alliance between his uh, empire and Sabrin's kingdom, queendom. And basically, he proposes the creation of an alliance through marriage. Well, typically, you would propose an alliance through marriage, right? Loth doesn't offer that, and the Unceasing Emperor asks why, and Loth says it's because um, the Queen was just widowed, she doesn't want to get married again so soon. And the Emperor says, In the name of a modern alliance, I will not make marriage a prerequisite of the arrangement. And then Loth is really surprised by this, and the Emperor says, And it happens that I am in no mood to marry. I know this is a short little line. But like it's it's interesting, you know, because the guy. I don't know. He could just not want to marry someone he's never met before. True, and later on it does mention that, like he did have someone he loved, I think. Yeah, so could but just be she, weed boy. Yeah, but weed I don't boy know. and his antics. Again. I thought it was worth mentioning. It, it it might not be a queer thing, but I thought I'd read into it. <laughs> worth mentioning. This is just so, us stretching for our presentation here besides yes. the main couple. Okay, main then two there's couples. Well, okay, wait. Yeah, Chanart and Bruce are the other couple. Yeah, so we discussed the, them pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Basically, yeah, they fell in love. They had like a 30 years together. It was really A 30-year affair, though. Yeah. But it didn't feel like an affair. It felt like they, they were, were married, just... almost. Because, yep. like, Chanart's a wife... They were friends, nothing it's, more. And when she found out about it, she was happy, like, post-mortem. She was happy that, like, yeah. Janart was able to be happy. And the three so, of them were friends. Yeah, like, it didn't really feel like an affair, but more exactly. of just, like, kind of an understanding. Yeah. Especially because it was a betrothal, you know? Yeah, like, I think all of them understood, like, the nuances and how they could kind of just be nice enough to not worry about the semantics of the era. Exactly. So, and yeah. this brings us to, to Eden Sabrin. Eden Sabrin, <laughs> this Which is the biggest spoiler ever. <laughs> felt a lot like enemies to lovers. Um, if it did, it was honestly, I, I wasn't expecting that at the beginning. That was like the most beautiful turn of event ever. Like, um, okay, maybe Folly, did you know about like this before the book? Because so I know you I recommended knew it. It was queer and lesbian, but I didn't know who the couples were. Did um, you were you able to guess it earlier though? Not really. Me neither. Like this was like the really good because looking back you could see it, but reading through it, you kind of wouldn't have guessed it from the first few chapters. Exactly. So like they sort of so at first, Eid is kind of like a lesser member of the Queen's household. She's been there for like seven years at that point, yeah. right? 
Yeah. And then she starts to befriend the queen. I think it starts when the when she is like telling a tale to the queen, like one of their usual um what's the word? Religious tales about like how Cleoland was a damsel in distress. And then but she changes it. Yeah, she changes like, the story it. of the mother. Yeah, to herb like the Priory of the Orange Tree story, because they believe, you know, Cleoland did not marry Galleon. So when she changes it, like Sabron is at first Sabron is <laughs> super like angry at her, but then she invites her to the garden and she slowly starts realizing that Eid's like willing to tell the truth about stuff to her when everyone else just wants to placate her. Exactly. And they first like kiss and have sex. Like after um, her child miscarries, right? No. Really? Um so it's after oh wait yes so after she miscarries they have this conversation where Sabrin asks it wasn't even after like her husband died though it was after she miscarried after she miscarried but they started growing closer after um her husband yeah after he died and Sabrin asks Eid to buy her poison so that she can like commit suicide so that she can avoid the inevitable conflict over succession after the world finds out that she can't have a kid anymore. Um, so Eid tells her that she will not bring her the poison. And then they do the whole thing where they sort of like get closer and closer until their lips oh, work so and I close a breath apart. And then Eid kisses her. <laughs> And it's so cute because like it is really those, cute it's one of those sex scenes just that just sort of skips over the like the vulgar sex. parts or anything exactly. it's just sweet exactly and like yeah at this point you and, kind like, of expect it as in it makes sense yeah you expect it because they have like tension between think, them but you can't tell if it's yeah. sexual or because of the religious differences I think ever since, though, like, Octobret Livelin was there, like, Shannon, like, slowly creeps in this idea of jealousy with, like, a weird feeling, and that's when it hit me, like, oh my god, they're Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to point out that after they have sex for the first time, it mentions, um... Sabran thinks, like, she's just doing out of duty, which is funny. <laughs> no, but Eid is thinking about taking... Sabran away to the milk lagoon, which is also mentioned by Jenar by Jenar to Nicholas. So it's, it's like really a parallel this idea of like forbidden love. And but it's funny because it's not forbidden because it's queer. It's forbidden because of like obligations or familiar yes. duty. Exactly. Or breaking the night of fellowships like oath or whatever. And it's it's really interesting to have a queer relationship that still has those elements of like forbiddenness so queer people can empathize with it but not homophobia yeah and like that was beautiful it's refreshing it is it is and it's an interesting parallel between these two relationships because you have the same thing where Eid is seen as a commoner in this kingdom Mm -hmm. as Nicholas is and Jenar and Sabran are higher ranking and like and they both kind of take them in. Exactly. And it's seen as unfit for these relationships to exist 
because of the stress placed on class differences. Yeah. <sighs> I think we've gone over all of it then. So insert wait, the music wait, wait, wait. here. What? What? No? One more thing I want to discuss. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know if you have your book, but page 467. There's an interesting, spicy little homoerotic. Give me a minute. Stuff between Kaliba and Eid. Oh my god. I remember that. That was so. It was out of token. Was, I was not expecting it was, that. It was kind of creepy because. It was. It, okay, it, it felt like. So basically, Kaliba. Eid goes to um, what's called the Bower of something. The Bower something. Yeah. We, we're great podcasters, guys, if you yeah. can't tell. The Bower, um, where Kaliba lives, in order to figure out the truth about the gem and the jewel and Sidon and um, the tale of the damsel and the saint and all of that history that surrounds the banishing of the, na- uh, the Nameless One. And Kaliba says, if you basically uh, sleep with me, I will tell you all. For one night. For one night. She asked for a one night stand these. for like the it's secrets kind of, of the universe. <laughs> and Eid It says, felt weird because yeah. Kaliba is like a thousand years old. Exactly. But Eid said... Um, I'm in love with someone else, bro, basically. Actually, wait, considering that later on, it would be revealed that Kaliba is, like, the first, is pretended to be Cleoland and is actually the first person of the Barathnet bloodline, wouldn't that be kind of like having... Sex with your girlfriend's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother? Yes. Kinda, yeah, that's creepy. But... Yeah, so it's it's an interesting like interaction, especially when you consider that um, Kaliba fell in love with Galleon, who she raised, by the way, which is a yeah, whole another. Yeah, Kaliba is just messed creepy. up on so many levels. Yeah. Because like I don't know how you fall in love with your kid. Yeah, it's it's, it's wrong. Just, Even Eid no. was like, "Oh my god, what the heck!" Like, yeah. So basically, Kaliba transfigured herself into an image of Cleoland and enchanted Galleon into sleeping with her after which she got pregnant and then Galleon basically hung him hung himself after he found out because he was so ashamed it's like- so it's it's so messed up some Kaliba in the whole form but yeah I guess there's an instance of queerness in it yeah but wait before we end this I think a big thing we need to go over is how everyone everyone in the book was kind of right and wrong about their religion at the same time, which right? felt like really funny. Little little bits about exactly because so the story goes by Virtudum. I think we we went over this though, right? Do you want Basically, me to read the story, like parts of the story? I don't know if I can do that. I I don't know about that, but no, I think we can just that. go. Yeah, let's just go over. Basically, Virtue believes Cleoland was saved by Galleon Brathnat, and they continued the bloodline. The prior, the prior of the Orange Tree believes that Cleoland rejected Galleon, and so he went back to Virtue and told them a false tale about um, about how he vanquished, vanquished, banished, banished. <laughs> I have no, I have no idea. Vanquished and banished. <laughs> The nameless, one. The, name, the nameless one and how um yeah galleon was just a crybaby and cleoland was like the real hero and then 
What does the East believe, though, in terms of religion? Because the East dragons. The East believes in the dragons. So basically, after right before the Nameless One was defeated, there was this comet that increased the power of um, the dragons, and there's this one <laughs> dragon called Quiriki, who they believe was like super powerful and helped vanquish the Nameless One. So the East is kind of right, actually. They just did not. <laughs> they just yeah, did not so delve into that, that whole Cleolin stuff. Yeah, it wasn't that specific dragon that vanquished him, but it was that the increasing comet. power of the com- that came with the comet that vanquished him. So they were kind as of well fr- as the as yeah. well as the metal harvested from the comet that created Ascalon the sword. Yeah, so they were kind of wrong about stuff, but they were the right, and they were the only religion that, like, knew the dragons were not to be, or the water dragons were not to be, like, seen as bad. And then the Priory was kind of right in how they got everything right, except it turns out Galleon was deceived by Kaliba. So they were still kind of wrong, which I think is really funny, because yeah. everyone was kind of wrong. And then Virtue down. It's like, it's almost like, like if people the thing is, discuss yeah, their ideas, exactly the whole picture exactly yeah, I wonder. and one like, more th- yeah yeah just one more thing i'd like to discuss uh i love how even in innis they're like black people and brown people that are inish they're not oh, like yeah. immigrants or whatever mm-hmm. like one of the ladies in waiting cat she's described as being black and um Eid obviously is Almost all the characters here are, like, kind of brown. Yeah, almost all of them are POC. I think there's a couple that are white. Like, Sabran seems like she's white, right? Yeah, so Sabran's white and the Duke's spiritual are white. But there's plenty of, like, POC members of the court, and I think it's... I think it's... It's it's very nice. It's kind of funny, though, because, like, in our tiny world today, you know, like, being white is, like, kind of seen as the dominant thing. But in actuality, POC is, like most of the world and so the book basically touches on that kind of um yeah i think that's i think that that concludes the priory of the orange tree so well we are we gonna rate it yes we're gonna rate it we are gonna rate it i'm gonna give this book Let's see. Eight out of ten rainbow dragons. <laughs> because there were some issues with the conflict between the resolution of the conflict between the East and the West, as we discussed, that I didn't entirely feel comfortable with. And um, I did feel it was a little rushed in the end. But overall, I felt like this was a really good book. And I enjoyed reading it, and I didn't want to put it down. <laughs> Okay, I will give this 8.5 out of 10 ra- Rainbow Dragons, just because, me. yes, <laughs> no, but because I literally have never been able to get into anything fantasy like this ever, I hate books like this, but this was good, so I'm amazed that it was actually good enough, but I, like, agree with you, too, that there were issues with, like, just the rushing of the ending and how certain plot lines had to be wrapped up too quickly, Mm, but also I kind of see like how this was I feel like in a lot of ways I wouldn't know how to fix it though like this is the best way this could have gone which is why I'm gonna give it like such a high rating I agree with that and all all in all like Miss Miss Susan Miss Shannon 
Shannon, <laughs> she, her writing is just beautiful. The way, like, she mixes her words and just twists, like, these metaphors just delivers the whole story. Amazing. <laughs> also, real quick, at, our, at the end, I realized we never said our pronouns. So, once again, I'm, we're going to introduce ourselves. I'm Vali. <laughs> my pronouns are they, them. I am Rhea, and I go by any pronouns. So Beautiful. Thank you all for coming and listening to this podcast, even though you didn't go anywhere. Yeah, th- thanks for um, listening. So uh, <laughs> we'll see you back in two weeks when we'll be discussing All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Yep. All right. We hope you like this and we'll hope you come back. Thanks for listening to <laughs> Thank you. Queerly Ever After. Queerly Ever After.